This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of A Dog Named Mattis, 12 Lessons for Living Courageously, Serving Selflessly, and Building Bridges from a Heroic Canine Officer, written and narrated by Sergeant Mark Tappan, available now everywhere. This episode is brought to you in part by Harvest House Publishers and the new book, The Good Gift of Weakness. Discover how human weakness not only allows God's strength to shine, but it was all by His design. The Good Gift of Weakness is now available wherever books are sold. It is a point of research that when people feel that they are not approved by majority culture as women or as people of color, there is a sense that in order to get that level of recognition, you've got to be twice as good. You have to be above reproach. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Russell Moore and Nicole Martin. Today on our show, we're going to talk about Claudine Gay's resignation from Harvard. The embattled president resigned on Tuesday. Then, speaking of presidents, it's 2024. We'll talk about the state of the presidential race and what's happening since we last talked on the show. And then we're going to talk about Israel and Ukraine, two wars that look like they'll be carrying on throughout this year, perhaps. And we'll talk about the state of those wars, and we'll also talk about the fatigue that can set in. How can we stay engaged and concerned when the end isn't necessarily in sight? Stay with us. All right. Happy New Year. Welcome back, Nicole and Russell. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So we were talking right before we got rolling about when is the cutoff for saying Happy New Year? And Nicole, your rule is? Whenever you see someone for the first time that year, even if it's like in March. Hey, even if it's in March. Happy New Year. Great to happy see New you. Year. Absolutely. And I think that because in Christ, everyone is a new creation and this is the year of the Lord's favor, <laughs> it is always appropriate to say Happy New Year. Tis the year oh. of the Lord's favor. Happy New Year. And, Happy uh, New Year. That's a good Happy one. New Year. Oh, my goodness. All right. That's your Friday morning devotional from the bulletin. It is 2024, and we're going to talk in just a moment about the 2024 presidential elections, but there's another president who has been in the news pretty much nonstop since we last talked. Claudine Gay, president of Harvard University, resigned on Tuesday after an embattled few weeks the story began in October when a number of alumni began raising concerns about her response to the Hamas attacks against Israel and protests that were happening on Harvard's campus. Then in December, she had a disastrous appearance before Congress, along with two other presidents from Ivy League universities, where she was unable to condemn speech calling for genocide and said its permissibility was context-dependent. Shortly after that, a conservative activist named Christopher Rufo announced that he was coming after her academic record. He then ran some of her scholarly work through software that looks for plagiarism, and lo and behold, it produced evidence of plagiarism. The Washington Free Beacon picked that story up afterwards and did an investigation of its own, and I believe at this point they have found more than 50 instances, and then finally, on Tuesday, Gay resigned from the presidency. There are a lot of dynamics in this story worth exploring. Let me start by just kicking it over to our resident Ivy League scholar, Nicole Martin. Nicole, what do you make of this story? I think this story carries numerous complexities, 
But as a colleague of ours stated, I think it is true that it cannot be taken outside of the context of race. So prior to these moments, from the moment she was selected to lead this institution, the critics and the enemies and really people of all types were looking for her flaws. And it's a reminder to me of a common understanding that I live with that is also a source of pain. It's the sense that when you are not In the highlight of power, when you're not in a seat of the preferred majority in America, you will always have to work twice as hard to get half the respect. And I know there will be some listening who will say, that's not true. That's not my experience. I can tell you not only is it my experience, but it is a sociological fact. It is a point of research that when people feel that they are not approved by majority culture as women or as people of color, there is a sense that in order to get that level of recognition, you've got to be twice as good. You have to be above reproach. And it is worth saying that plagiarism is wrong and we should not sit with that. And we also agreed that her comments were inadequate when it came to protecting the students that were in her care. But the vitriol that's coming against her at this time. And the fact that the conservative activist was so clear in saying, this is my attack, and so triumphant in her resignation symbolizes there's a whole lot more at stake here. First of all, you'll get no argument from me that Christopher Rufo has proven himself to be a, a bad actor. He's part of the media ecosystem, activist ecosystem that emerged around uh, Donald Trump and post-Donald Trump sort of part-time internet troll, part-time quasi-journalist, conference speaker, etc. I think the danger in a story like this is then committing like the genetic fallacy and saying, because this person is the one who's saying it, we have to throw everything out the window. At the same time, I want to take seriously what you're saying, because I think what you're saying is very true, that someone like Claudine Gay in that position is going to be scrutinized in different ways and and that sort of thing because of the the color of her skin. I think there's another way to tell the Claudine Gay story, not in a way that sort of nullifies the race storyline, but that runs alongside it and at least complexifies it a little bit. Because when you hear Claudine Gay's story, oftentimes people say she's the daughter of Haitian immigrants and she succeeded in school and she went on to become the president of of Harvard. It's important to know about her background is that she is the daughter of immigrants, but her parents own a concrete dynasty in Haiti. This is a woman who came from enormous wealth and privilege. She attended Exeter, which is one of the most prestigious private boarding schools in the world, and then went on to Stanford and then to, to Harvard later. So on the one hand, clearly someone who is brilliant. You don't get into those places. You don't stay in those places unless you're able to deliver the goods at a certain level. I don't question the woman's intelligence. And I think people who do that, I think that can be very disgusting. At the same time, this is a woman who came from tremendous wealth and privilege and had access to these sort of centers of power throughout her career and exercised power well, clearly, in those realms to come to this place. And now is being called on the carpet. My point is that I think the extent to which this becomes a story about race, I worry, distracts from another story that's present here, which is someone with a tremendous amount of privilege and power who then 
when it was exposed that she had done something that was very clearly wrong and that a student, a graduate student, a PhD student, if they were caught doing that, would undergo some sort of disciplinary process. Even if you read her New York Times op-ed from yesterday in, in response to all this, at no point does she really acknowledge, I plagiarized and it was wrong and I shouldn't have done it. The commentary around it is very similar to what you read from Mark Driscoll in 2014 when it was found out that he was plagiarizing in books that he published. And, and in fact, the defenses of her from a lot of left-wing media and in her allies sound a lot like the defenses of Christian publishers who wanted to say misattribution, duplicative language, I think was one of the quotes that was very similar in all of that. So what's challenging for me, because I totally believe there's something to what you're saying, but there's this other element to it that looks to me as a story about power and privilege and what can I get away with. And I think that's a deeply problematic story as well that isn't necessarily being addressed in the middle of this. The Mark Driscoll analogy, I think, is apt in this way. There were a lot of people when any of the Driscoll scandals or the Zachariah scandals or, or almost any other one who would say, these are unbelievers who are attacking him and he's a Christian and so therefore we need to stand with him. Sometimes even when you have really nasty people with bad motivations, you have to take the L on that one because the situation is bad. And this is clearly the case. With plagiarism, you're talking really about two very bad situations together, one of them having to do with academic competence, the other having to do with character. And they're both important. You can't lead a university, especially Harvard University, when you are going to be expelling people for doing the very thing that you did. And the minute that Harvard says, because the people who are coming against her have these awful motives, that means we have to stand with her, you no longer have a legitimate academic institution. There's nothing else they could do with that. And the other thing is the simple case that plagiarism is not just some sort of mistake. Plagiarism is lying and theft. You're taking someone else's work that someone has worked hard to do, and you're lying by presenting that as being your own work. That's a character issue that, that ought to disqualify anybody from leadership, especially when the response is in the op-ed that Claudine Gay did in the New York Times, I made some mistakes, but this is not one of those situations where you look at the work and you say, I mean, it's similar to something else. As you said, it's cutting and pasting somebody else's work and presenting it as your own. And in that case, I think we ought to be able to say, yeah, Chris Rufo is a hack and has really awful intentions that he has said. He's the one who gave us the CRT controversy that was directed toward anybody who talks about racial justice at all. That is probably all, all three of us have been on including the three of us. <laughs> that is all true. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there is nothing, once that has come to light, there is nothing else that the Harvard board can do except to say, this is not somebody who's qualified now to lead us. I think there's a clear uh, agreement between us about how mm -hmm. wrong plagiarism is at this level within any level of scholarship in general, but specifically for an institution that prides itself on truth and the highest form of scholarship and all of that. That is clear. I think I would push back on the idea of a perception of privilege and power because any 
person of color leading at any high level is operating at a power deficit societally, I would challenge the perception that because of wealth or because of a, a socioeconomic standing in her country that attributes to some level of societal power or privilege. I would say, though, that her plagiarism in the context of being called the N-word, in the context of a world that is looking for confirmation bias from a Black woman that in the eyes of the majority of many people shouldn't even be there, that adds another level. There is a sense, see, I knew she didn't belong as well. And no one so far has really said, this is the fault of Harvard's board. The plagiarism element shouldn't come up after a person is six months into the presidency. It should come up at the time of the hire. But again, fingers are pointed at this woman, this Black woman, who, again, many people feel shouldn't have gotten that role in the first place, as opposed to pointing to the systems that allowed her to have this role at this time. So for me, I think I find it pretty easy to hold in tension these realities, the reality that plagiarism and anti-Semitism is wrong, and also that this woman was a part of a racialized system that has demonized her in a way that the Stanford president, who also plagiarized, was never demonized. Her reputation has been completely destroyed. Her ability to not be attacked, no one's talking about. The death threats that she receives, the kind of demonization that's happening for her, and it's not just against her. I feel that. I, I think other people with the perception of power in places and positions where others are thinking they don't belong, we feel this sense of, if she was demonized in that way, if I make any mistake, I too will be demonized. I would have been okay with Claudine stepping down with the board owning. We should have caught this. We didn't catch it. And then you have to uncover why didn't they catch it? Because we wanted a black woman president. But no one's going to say that. I think that's very interesting. You said it a moment ago, what's the board's responsibility in this? And I will say there's definitely some right-wing media commentary that's saying, don't blame just Claudine Gay, blame the board, blame a hiring process that was rushed. I've seen several people commenting on it saying, here's someone who published 11 scholarly papers in a 26-year academic career. That's a very low output for an academic career, particularly for somebody that you would elevate to someplace like to be the president of Harvard. And the point being, there were red flags in terms of the hiring process and vetting process for how Claudine Gay gets the job that she then gets. So say more about how you think about the responsibility of the board and what the board should be doing now. There's a lot of literature on what it means for predominantly white institutions to hire and support people of color. Tons of reading. Even if you were to Google that, you would find lots of information. Brian Loritz has a fantastic book around this idea. But the general idea is when a board makes a historic move to hire a one and only or a first of any demographic, the level of support and scrutiny that's required of those who have hired that person is higher than it would be of someone who's been there before. So in other words, the responsibility of the board is not just to take her through a normal process to assure onlookers and students and faculty members that this is a president you can trust, but it is also, I believe, the responsibility of the board to stand up and to speak up when they have erred. 
and Mm -hmm. not to allow her solely to take the responsibility. We take responsibility for not checking this. I think all of that can be true. And this is a misuse of power. This is somebody who is the president of Harvard University. And part of what happens with the buck stopping with her is to maintain a credible academic institution. She can't do that if she is herself doing the very thing she will be expelling students for. That's a misuse of power. And if what the board had done was to say, we don't like what she did, but she's going to stay here. You have to apologize to everyone that you have kicked out. I've kicked out lots of students for plagiarism over the years. You have to do that all the time. They couldn't have done anything else. And I think part of the problem here is, as several people have pointed out over the past several days, part of the problem is not just with Harvard. It's not just with her. It's with the entire model of university presidency right now in so many places, which Mm. previously was an expectation to be a scholar and to lead in terms of example to the rest of the institution. Now it's become in many places almost entirely a fundraising responsibility where the person actually is not expected to be involved in academic work, but just to keep the money flowing. And that can lead to a lot of compromises of integrity in a lot of places. At the end of the day, there has to be a kind of a Daniel-like calling for every leader that says, I am so far above reproach that I'm not worried about the attack that comes against me. That is valid. I read the New York Times article that she wrote, and my interpretation of it was, I recognized my wrong and I tried to correct it. And I think it's interesting that is you're hearing it differently. You read it as she did not openly confess that it was wrong. I read it as I confessed that it was wrong and I tried to correct it. So I'm saying all of these details make this situation a lot more complex. The wrong is clear. The ways that the wrong came to light, the ways that the wrong has implications on what's next, that's where it gets a little tricky. And oh, by the way, the fact that Harvard hired their next president as a Jewish professor, that's also making a statement. Harvard is telling us we make statements with our hires. and. I think you have to pay attention to that. Before we wrap this subject up, is there a takeaway here for churches? Because what I'm thinking about as I hear this is I remember it was 2015, and Russell, you were around for some of this peripherally. Our church hired an African-American pastor to lead one of our campuses. He was the first black Mm -hmm. pastor we were bringing on staff. It was a campus that was in a predominantly black neighborhood, predominantly white congregation. We wanted to move towards a more multi-ethnic model of ministry. That's the way he has described it. And praise God, eight years later, his name's Jamal Williams, and he wrote a book about it and told some of the good, bad, and ugly of that experience Mm -hmm. and weathered that experience. But he would be the first to say it, and I would be the first to say it's absolutely true. We were not prepared for the culture shift that hiring a black pastor for that congregation required. We didn't know what we didn't know. Is there a similar takeaway, Nicole, from what you're describing here that, that could apply to churches or Christian colleges? that are thinking about this kind of challenge. I've been talking to several Christian leaders in predominantly Black churches, and the grief of this moment can unintentionally send a message, we're just never going to be good enough. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, you're not going to be accepted. And I think that there's a sentiment that comes outside of what was wrong in this situation. There's a sentiment that says, racism is so real that your mistakes will not be forgiven. 
in the way that the mistakes of others might be. Your mess-ups will not be overlooked. So therefore, A, you must work hard to be perfect, and B, you must understand that you'll never be accepted. And I would say to those churches, to people who are wrestling with that type of challenge, I go back to the understanding of Daniel. There is a place to live a life above reproach. There is a reason why we have to do everything within our power to live wholly before God and to live rightly before people. Because should an elevation like this come, you will need the confidence and the assurance to stand on knowing that you have done everything that is right to get to where you are. And then secondly, you always need the right allies who will not just support you when everything is great, but who will support you when things get tough. When you live your life in a way that honors and pleases God, God will send you the community of allies that will be there for you in your time of need. Mm, That's well put. All right, we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders, to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com today. This episode is brought to you by Our Daily Bread Ministries, a global media organization that makes the life-changing wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to all. As a part of that mission, Where You're From is a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us on each episode as we ask another Christian thought leader, Where You're From, and discover how their life experiences and expertise even if we may disagree with something they say, offers us important perspectives worth thinking about. To see our list of guests, visit whereyou'refrom.org today. That's where, y-a-from.org. I'm Russell Berry, reminding you that it's not just about where you're at, but it's also about where you're from. All right. So again, our last conversation was three weeks ago. A lot has happened in that time. Right before we had our last conversation, Colorado had just removed Trump from their ballots. Since then, the Secretary of State in Maine has also removed him under the same logic. There are some other states that have said they are looking at this. I believe it was around that time that I also made the bold prediction that we would see movement in the Republican primary, specifically that Nikki Haley would win in New Hampshire a few days after that bold prediction, the town hall <laughs> event. She was asked what caused the Civil War. She gave a very weird, convoluted answer about freedom and the freedoms we choose and how we choose freedom. She didn't mention slavery. When the questioner called her out on that, she said, what do you want me to say about slavery? <laughs> My immediate thought was, this is what I get for making a positive prediction <laughs> about the 2024 race. Don't worry, race. Russell and I had that immediate thought as well, <laughs> didn't you? <laughs> That's exactly In terms of state of the race, let's just start there. How significant was that gaffe? And does it matter? We're about 10 days out from Iowa and a little less than three weeks out from New Hampshire. Anything look different? 
I really don't think anything is different because mm. the state of the race is where it was. Here is what is different, is that I think this gaffe was not just a gaffe. It was, for a lot of people, a confirmation of what they already suspected. And what they suspected was not that Nikki Haley is pro-slavery or anything like that. It was the intuition that she's cynical and that she's really wanting to state back to people what they want to hear. Now, whether that's fair or not fair, that is the vibe that a lot of people get from Nikki Haley. And when you think about South Carolina, you go back and you look at the kinds of answers that she would give in the past about tradition, heritage, and so forth, appealing to a constituency in South Carolina. Now, she then went and removed the Confederate flag from the Capitol grounds really courageously after the murders at Mother Emanuel Amy Church, but confirmed something that was already not working in a lot of people's minds. Having said that, do I think that this has cost her really anything much? No. There's nobody who was going to say, I was going to vote for Nikki Haley, but now I'm going to vote for Trump because I don't think she's abolitionist enough. That's not what's mm -hmm. going to happen. But what will happen is there are a lot of people, I think, who would have said, I want to vote for Chris Christie or someone else, but she's the only one who can win, so I'm going to vote for her. I think that is what is now eroded, is that expectation. So I don't think Chris Christie's going to get out of the race now at all. I don't think he would have before, but I definitely don't think he will now. And I think that there are a lot of people who are going to be able to vote for Chris Christie or somebody else without a hitch in their throat, thinking, am I actually help helping Trump? I don't think that will be their response now. Yeah, I think it was pretty clear that Nikki Haley did not believe the response that she gave. <laughs> and it was almost laughable that someone from South Carolina would even suggest or pretend that she didn't know or didn't want to name the source of the Civil War. But it did surprise me that it demonstrated a level of hunger that she had for Trump's base. It did make you think, wow, she really is trying to go after people who are so afraid of anything that appears to be woke that they would do anything. And in her pursuit of that base, she has potential now to lose them because all she did was give her competitors something else to pile on. The whole quote unquote tricky Nikki term, it became even more apropos because she demonstrated her willingness to pursue political gain by any means necessary. It was another demonstration that politicians are motivated by how many people they can gain. And the perception that a statement they don't believe in would help them gain more people is enough for them to say things they, they sincerely, their track record proves that they don't believe in. I think it also, as many people pointed out, it doesn't help you to seem to be advocating Confederate slavery in New Hampshire. Especially when really the only way that she has to win in New Hampshire is with independents and Democrats who vote in the Republican primary. But what we all know is she's not actually thinking about New Hampshire. She's thinking about South Carolina. If I were to somehow win New Hampshire, I have to be able to carry this forward, and she knows South Carolina. And so I think there are a lot of people who now are saying, maybe we suspected that what she really wants to be is Trump's vice president. 
And so you have a lot of Trump supporters who are furious about the cynicism of it. They don't want her there. And a lot of people who would be her voters who are saying, ah, this kind of confirms it. She's just going to do whatever she has to do. Every politician is trying to get votes. And no politician is going to do the Bullworth, what Warren Beatty thing, where you just come out and say whatever it is that you think. Nobody's going to do that. But there's an especial kind of cynicism where you say you don't have to— uh, this isn't a hard one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. What's interesting about Nikki Haley is that Nikki is a woman of color running on the Republican ticket who rarely makes reference to the fact that she's Indian and that she's a woman. When she's asked about it, she said, I want to run on my ideas. I don't want to run on my identity. Like, that's been her thing. And <clears throat> the thing is, if you search her name on social media networks and all of that, it becomes very obvious very quickly that the trollish white supremacist wing of the Republican coalition is not letting her forget, has no desire to forget, and has not forgotten that she is a woman of color. She's not going to win any of those people. And I think mm -hmm. she knows that. I think the best explanation of what happened in that moment was she's in this town hall in 2024 and gets a civil war question in New Hampshire out of nowhere I think she was just – this was Mike Murphy's explanation, the political – Republican political strategist. He said, I think she just goes, oh, my gosh, what do I do? And she defaults to running for governor, what, 12 years ago? Yeah. When the issues in South Carolina looked a little different, when the Confederate flag was still hanging over the Capitol building. And she defaulted to, well, how do I respond to a Civil War question? This is how you have to talk about freedom and liberty and the war of northern aggression or whatever, however it goes. And it was a terrible answer and a terrible response. But yeah, I think I, to come back to the larger question, does it matter? I don't think it matters on multiple fronts, in part because I don't think the people who were ultimately offended by that question were ever voting for her if they're voting at all in 2024. You mentioned Christie. That's another big story in the midst of this. Christie's numbers have been fairly steady in New Hampshire, around 11, 12 percent. Right before the new year, the governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, said that Chris Christie needs to get out. He endorsed Nikki Haley and said Christie needs to get out so that we have a real possibility of actually beating Trump. You've already said you, you don't think he's going to get out. Does he have a path? Does he have – like, why is he in at this point? He doesn't have a path to becoming the Republican nominee, and I think he knows that. I think instead the path that he's trying to make is to have somebody who is telling the truth about Donald Trump. And what's happening is you have a bunch of people who seem to be terrified to say anything beyond – like hiked the deficit up rather than where the, the real problems are. And there needs to be somebody who is willing to say, hey, everybody, we have a serious crisis problem here. And Christie is able to do that. And so I think he's not the kind of person temperamentally who would have uh, – there were a lot of people who were expecting maybe like Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar did with uh, Joe Biden against Bernie Sanders. He'll do that. And I think there might have been a lot of pressure on him to do that if it really looked like, OK, Nikki Haley surging. There's really a possibility of a Nikki Haley presidency. That's not the case if what people are thinking, and I'm not saying this is accurate, but if what people are thinking is, well, she wants to get enough to be considered a credible vice presidential candidate. Christie's not going to be a moral mandate to pull out at that point. 
It's interesting. We're getting close. There's one debate left on the 10th next week, Wednesday night, and then we get to the caucuses. There are two other Republican candidates still in the race. Technically, Asa Hutchinson is still running at 0.4% in New Hampshire. He's in there. And like Christie, he's the only other one that has said he would not support Donald Trump, were Trump to be the nominee. And then there is Vivek Ramaswamy. It looks like we're maybe getting near the end of the Vivek phenomenon. He stopped spending money in Iowa in particular, but he's pretty much stopped spending money in New Hampshire. He did, however, receive the coveted endorsement of former Congressman Steve King. Russell, why don't you remind listeners who Steve King is and tell us, is Vivek done? And did we learn anything from the Vivek phenomenon. Steve King was an Iowa congressman who would consistently give white nationalist talking points, saying things like using great replacement theory language before that was really as widespread as it is now about immigrants and people of color replacing white people, but also talking about immigrants in unbelievably awful sorts of terms. He was thrown off of his committees by the Republican House, which no doubt would not happen now, but did at the time and was defeated in the Republican primary in Iowa and has become, if anything, more and more radical since he's been out of office. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where you probably, most people would probably say, eh, Steve King, I can probably just vote for me if you want to, but keep it to yourself. <laughs> but not Vivek, no. <laughs> All right. Are either of y'all planning to watch the debate between the last debate for the Iowa caucuses? Only only DeSantis and Haley have qualified. Yeah, it's DeSantis and Haley with counter-programming by Trump. On Fox. And everybody knows at this point it's not as though you're actually going to have either DeSantis or Haley – really make the case against the person they're actually running against, the person who actually has to be defeated to win the (laughs) primary. And I've watched every presidential debate in both parties since I was 12 years old. I'm bored by it. (laughs) I can only imagine what people who have a, a better, more normal life than I do would respond to it with. Yeah, I I feel like the draw is that voice in the back of your head that is the same voice that you're getting gas in your car and you're like, two bucks for a Powerball. It's just two bucks. And look how great it would be if I actually won, right? Yeah. Because you're tuning in to go, one of them could say something that changed things. They could have their Reagan 84 debate moment. Yeah, but if you're wanting to fantasize about a different world where there's a better president, just watch West Wing reruns because (laughs) there are just very few people who who actually think that either of these people are going to be able to make it at this point. And it would be different if what you had were people who were standing up and a Chris Christie-Vivek debate would have people who are actually saying things. And there would be a level of unpredictability as to how that would go. I think Chris Christie might hurt Vivek if it was one-on-one. Oh, I think so. so yeah. Again, I would tune in for that. I would yeah. <laughs> All right. We will be right back. Hi, I'm Charlie Peacock. And if you're enjoying this show, I think you'd love Music and Meaning, a podcast where we go in-depth into the world of music, sharing evocative stories of crafting popular songs the whole world sings. We explore how music transcends mere sound, 
becoming a mirror to our times, a testimony to our shared humanity, and a sign and symbol of our deepest joys and needs. Join us and listen to Music and Meaning on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Coming into 2024, there is a war going on in Israel. There is a war in Ukraine. There are signs of instability in other parts of the world. In the time since we last talked, both Ukraine and Israel have had some pretty significant offensive successes in their wars. There's also growing tension and unrest around our support, human rights issues related to these wars, the funding of these wars. Also, while we were away, and this might be something that we need to get into a little more detail maybe on a future episode, but Israel had a landmark legal ruling this week that could have significant long-term implications for Israeli politics and Benjamin Netanyahu and his coalition. But let's talk for a minute about fatigue. We'll be coming up on two years of war in Ukraine here in just a couple of months. Next week will be four months since the war began in Israel. And paying attention to these things takes a kind of emotional toll. And a lot of times uh, I hear from a lot of people, I don't know how to stay dialed in. I don't know when it matters and what I should be paying attention to. How do we think about this? How should Christians think about attending to these conflicts and fatigue from attending to these conflicts and when it matters and when it doesn't? I think there is a real sense of that fatigue, but also there's a biblical precedent to anticipate this level of fatigue. It was Jesus himself who said that there will be wars and rumors of wars in the last days. The anticipation that there will be the existence of threats and the rumor of threat suggests that this is going to be a part of our lives until Jesus comes back again. And I think that the temptation is not only to ignore the wars themselves, to ignore what's happening in that location, in Ukraine or in Israel or in Gaza. The temptation is to ignore the undercurrents of these wars. And that, I think, is where we have to pay attention. Because in the case of Ukraine, for example, you have this kind of very overt attempt of a dictator to claim land and to claim governments and to claim people as their own. This is Putin's attempt to say, I'll take what I want to take. And then you start to see that play out in other places. I think this is why we have to pay attention to what's happening with China and this kind of New Year's address that I'm going to take over Taiwan from the Chinese president. There's a sense of an undercurrent of not just narcissism, but world dominance from dictators who say, I will take what is mine and you will do nothing about it. Mm -hmm. So we have to pay attention to the undercurrents. And then with that, we have to pay attention to the sleepiness of apathy. Apathy to me, just creeps up on you. And all of a sudden, you're not praying anymore for people who are still waiting for their loved ones to come home. You're not praying anymore for the aftermath of people who have been displaced. So it does affect how we pray, and it affects how we perceive what might actually be part of the plan of God as 
these last days play out. I'm hesitating and and halting because I'm like, man, I sound like one of those last day preachers. (laughs) Jesus is coming. The world is going to hell. This is supposed to happen. There might be a tiny bit of that. Jesus is coming. The world is going to hell. Last days (laughs) preachers is a good thing to be. Biblical (laughs) facts. Yeah. And Nicole, I think you're exactly right to point out Matthew 24 and Mark 13, because I think there are two things Jesus is doing there at the same time. One of those things is what you mentioned, which is to say, you're going to be tempted to freak out when you see wars and rumors of wars and and earthquakes. These are all just the birth pains. I'm telling you this beforehand so that you don't freak out. He's also saying, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee to the mountains. Don't simply assume everything is the way that it's always been, so pay attention. Mm-hmm. And I think that both of those things are necessary and sometimes more of an emphasis on one depending on a person's kind of temperament. So I think there's a kind of person who, when confronted with the groaning and suffering of the world all around us, the temptation is to say, I can't handle that, so I'm going to create a little fantasy world around myself where I just don't pay attention to that and plug my ears and la la. And you're right. And it's not only that you don't take responsibility for the areas that you do have influence, but you also don't groan. That's Romans 8. That is a part of what the Spirit does, is to have that sense of something has gone terribly wrong. But I think there are other people who need to be reminded, okay, I need to take a Sabbath from this, and I'm actually being driven crazy. So Mm -hmm. it's not just the exhaustion and the fatigue that we talked about. I think there's also a real danger. And I noticed this in my own life. There just came a moment over the holidays where I stopped and said, I think that when Walker Percy talked about despair, that the the worst kind of despair is the despair that doesn't know it's despair. Hmm. I think I've fallen into that in several places of a kind of, what are you going to do? A response and simply having the awareness that's there is the way to move out of it. So I think there is a kind of numbness that can come with people who have lost the expectation that there actually can be a work of the Spirit or that there can be the image of God manifesting itself in people who are taking responsibility to fight back against awful things. Some of you really need to hear, pay more attention, get more worried, and some of you need to hear, calm down. Mm -hmm. God's in control. When you look at wars that sort of grip a continent or the two world wars that bring everybody into them or the nature of the Cold War, like what were the brinksmanship moments with the Cold War? It's usually something small Mm -hmm. that has this effect of being like a splinter that then gets infected Mm -hmm. and your whole hand hurts and everything in your life stops. And so in the 1960s, the Soviet Union parked a bunch of warheads 90 miles off the coast of Miami. And we almost went to war for that. You know, there was an assassination in the 19-teens that, you know, a single assassination that kicked off a, a war. You think about what's happening in Israel and Ukraine. I was reading a couple of days ago that in Poland, the Polish Air Force is doing exercises, practicing dogfights against MiG-29s. They are readying their troops to know what it's going to be like when they go to war, not if, when they go to war. And if Poland goes to war with Russia, guess what? We're in NATO. Mm -hmm. We have an alliance with them. We're in war with Mm -hmm. Russia. So to me, I I think the, the fatigue thing is very real. And I see it in myself. I see it in a lot of my friends. And I think it's important. And yet at the same time, I think the comforts of modern life make it really easy to just shut it off very quickly. And your 
Twitter and Facebook and Instagram algorithm will learn very quickly that you're not interested in that when you stop clicking and start going to other things. Yeah. And we'll give you stuff that's much more interesting to look at, particularly if you want distraction rather than engagement. And so I think the potential for something really horrible mm-hmm. is right here. And there's eight different ways you can envision it igniting because you have all this angst and all this extremism in all these different places around the world all at the same time. Yeah. And I think part of the problem is we don't want to really face the fragility of our own lives and how close we actually are all to death, that our our lives are a vapor. And that sort of translates itself out into the global picture. We don't want to look at that. And so we want to turn away from it. And there's something in our personal lives that it's important about remembering your days are numbered, remembering you actually are fragile and precarious. And the same thing is true when it comes to looking at the world around us. And I honestly, Michael, you're talking about that with the way that media, I just, I I read a biography of Marshall McLuhan, the media Mm. scholar who was talking about social media and internet in the 60s, really, and describing it dead on and talking about what's happening to us. I don't know that we could win World War II right now because part of what was necessary for winning World War II was an American populace that would say, we're behind this and we're going to be in the factories working and we're going to not, we're going to not use sugar the way we would normally, all of those things. I don't know that we could sustain that for four years right now. We expect everything to be a reality television show that wraps itself up. And so there's a kind of sense where, and you'll see this, we already see it with Ukraine. We'll see it very soon, I think, with Israel, Hamas. Uh, people are, is, isn't this over yet? And I, that, that worries me about what could happen. Yeah. My only hope is that the conditions of war globally start to affect that everyday life where the price of rice is so high because of what's happening that people start to think, oh, we've got to do something about this. Someone joked with me the other day and said, yeah, 2024 is going to be the year of stockpiling again because of the anticipation that as war increases, it's going to have an impact on our supply chain and on how quickly we get things and on the ways that our imported goods are rolling into the U.S. But your example earlier made me think about going through the airport on New Year's Day. There were so many delays and I I remember looking over, there's a woman like flailing at the wall. I was like, oh no, what's going on? Has she lost it? No, she was wearing VR equipment. And she was like, (laughs) she had decided in that moment, because of all of the delays, because of the stress, I am going to another world. (laughs) I am just going. And, And I was thinking that is either brilliant or the dumbest thing you can do when you're waiting for someone to call your flight. But to your point, this is the reality that we're living in. You either check into another reality, which I think gone are the days of just talking about the impact of social media. We now have to talk about augmented reality. We have to talk about the fact that people are stepping into a whole new world where they can be a whole new person and completely ignore like the Hollywood depictions of the Truman Show style stepping into this fake reality. That is real. That is real. And for some people, they might need to step into that just to breathe. 
And then for others, yeah. you got to take that VR headset off because your plane's about to take off and it's going to take off with or without you. <laughs> yeah. And you're yeah. the pilot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Flail around. Yeah. Um, last thing before we go over the Christmas break, it's always a great time for TV and movies and reading. Hopefully you got to kick up your heels a bit and do a little of that. Anything in particular that you read or watched that, that stood out to you? We finally got around to watching Barbie, what, <laughs> three months after we discussed it here. And I realized, to put it the way Seth Godin teaches us to put it, it wasn't for me. But, if, <laughs> you know, we also, though, the boys and I saw Godzilla minus one. It is awesome. And it's yeah. awesome even when Godzilla's nowhere around. Yeah. It's just a, it's a really good human story in addition to the fun parts. Yeah, several movie critics that are like sort of notorious cranks have all said, wow, that was a surprisingly fantastic movie. So I'm, I've heard read, heard a review this morning that made me want to see it. Nicole, did you, anything stick out to you? Yeah, it's all about the trolls, man. Trolls movie, <laughs> <laughs> considering the fact that you don't really have babysitters over Christmas, which kind of defaults <laughs> to children's mm-hmm. movies. Nice. But I can tell you the Trolls movie was really good. It was all about the need for each other and the importance of family and the songs are really cute and funny. And there was nothing that I had to explain to my children afterwards, which always makes for a good movie. We don't have to get in the car and say, now, what was that character saying? And But it was good, clean, funny work. And also watching the National Lampoon's Christmas Vacations while wrapping gifts and Elf. That's like a tradition now. My (laughs) family hates that movie. What? They hate that movie. Hates which movie? National Lampoon's Christmas Really? They can't watch it. My wife she he stresses my wife out and my kids. Who does? Cousin Eddie? No, Chevy Chase. Oh Oh. yeah. Well he definitely yes. There were definitely parts where I was like, You have got to be kidding me. But if you start to think about that as funny and yeah. you don't get frustrated she by get the, the stereotypes <laughs> that are perpetuated in this movie, the in-laws, uh, you, can, you can always laugh at the in-laws. That, it, it's such a tradition that my mother sends me a video every year at Christmas of herself <laughs> in a little Christmas hat saying, yes. is Rusty still in the Navy? So <laughs> <laughs> that is the best. So I actually read a novel over the break. I haven't, I don't know the last time I sat down and read a novel because I'm working on this Israel project. I wanted to read a a novel I've had on my shelves for years by Amos Oz called A Tale of Love and Darkness. Mm. It's a memoir novel set during the years of Israel's founding in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And man, one of the most beautifully written things I've read in a long time. Highly recommended. All right. That's it for us this week. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced by Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Post-production by TJ Hester. Our art for this episode is by Rick Shooks. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. <laughs>